Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Just a reminder that Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode or Little Big Mood every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash mood. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Daniel M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Thivia Victor, a poet, author, and an associate professor of English at Michigan State University. She recently published Curb, which documents how immigrants and Americans navigate the liminal sites of everyday living. Thivia, welcome to the show. Hi, Danny. It's really great and exciting to be here. Thank you for having me. I am so looking forward to this. Um, I'm particularly looking forward to, uh, you know, more more than usual, I think. We we have some uh, out-of-the-way questions. Mm-hmm. I often get a lot of questions about dating relationships, and so it's kind of nice to have an episode with none, uh, where that's the sort of primary site of conflict. And um, at least one of these is is something that I have never given advice about before. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to finding out what what advice is possible there. Absolutely. Yes, you're right. Some some interesting and complicated questions ahead. I, I'm especially glad to have a, a professor on the show today because one of our questions is, I remember reading that question and thinking, you know, both, I'm, I'm glad that they're reaching out for, for advice, but also this seems like a question for your department chair. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, good. Good. I'm glad that my initial reaction was not too far off base. I will um, ask you to read our first letter. It's very exciting. It is exciting. Okay. It's such a privilege to read this. Our letter writer says, I'm afraid my best friend Jane is married to a criminal. Years ago, she impulsively married a man she met on a brief trip to another country. She has had issues with him since, like not telling her where he is or not taking her calls. At one point, he said he was in love with another woman, but apparently she convinced him Um, This other woman was not in love with him, and he stayed. Recently, Jane said her husband was going to start working for his cousin Joe in another state. As she put it, Joe's business involves being into everything. She learned Joe put her name on some legal documents for his quote-unquote family foundation. Apparently, he just did it without asking. So Joe told her that she is going to play a particularly important part in the business. He told her that he was going to have her travel all over the world and she would be selling guns. I am stunned. He told her that he has a quote-unquote arrangement with the local police department, which he says is totally legal. Again, that's in, in big shining quotes. Jane is a yoga instructor who is all peace and love, but Joe has intimated that she will be making a lot of money and this has clearly turned her head. Jane is enthralled to this man, 
mostly based upon the image he has built up as a king, her words, of business. I don't know what to say to her. My impulse would be to point out all the red flags, but knowing her and the vague promises Joe has made, I'm afraid that she would just be offended and angry. I do not know what to do. I am very afraid she is getting mixed up in something dangerous and illegal. I, I, do, I do share this letter writer's concerns that, uh, that their friend is getting mixed up in something potentially dangerous and illegal. I think my first thought is just, boy, whenever somebody says something like, no, 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 this is totally legal. I'm not inclined, just totally and legal are never words that when combined make me feel comfortable and at ease. I'm not quite sure where else to start beyond just a position of sort of surprise. So I'd love it if you would maybe get us kicked off with some of your thoughts about this. Yeah, surprise. I share that surprise. Um, This is a really hard situation. And it's a situation that brings up questions of boundaries and personal responsibility. You know, we can't live anyone else's life for them. And setting healthy boundaries in friendships is as important as it would be in any other relationship. So to this letter writer, um, I would say it's a heavy fear to bear within you. It's a fear, you know, that your friend is in danger, that their decisions have led them towards danger. And then there's this kind of secondary weight of helplessness that accompanies this and perhaps even guilt that you can't do enough to keep this friend safe. It sounds like this friend's partner has repeatedly broken the bond of trust that should exist in any relationship, marital or platonic, and they've gone beyond the relationship agreement, right? He has endangered her credit, her legal reputation. She, he has endangered her future by keeping her in the dark about some really important personal financial aspects. And I think that was the case even before the guns issue showed up, um, mm-hmm. So I think, you know, risks are a normal part of living, but it matters a lot whether we are choosing the risks or whether someone else is choosing the risks for us. I think that's one way to define power. So I would say, um, and, and Danny, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts as well. I would say in this situation, Jane might be considering taking risks on her own. She seems to be as the letter writer says, intrigued and enthralled by money, scintillation, um, possibly power. And if she decides to participate willingly with this Joe person, that's a moral and ethical choice she is making compared to some of the other incidents where she was in the dark and couldn't make moral and ethical choices. So my advice would be, um, sure, point out all the red flags. I understand the desire to protect her. And I would encourage the letter writer to have a straight conversation with her about the concerns. However, I would also encourage our letter writer to be very clear about what, you know, they want as an outcome. Do you want Jane to stop her partner? Do you want Jane to leave her partner? Do you want Jane to somehow not leave her partner and protect herself? So that's really tricky. And also, do you want to remain friends regardless of the decisions Jane ends up making, right? So ultimately, you know, it's your friend's decision. It's her life and not your life. And establishing that boundary is really important. It's as important as demonstrating the love and care you might feel for her. And, you know, you wouldn't want to reproduce the harm that this husband and his cousin have already done to your friend by sending the message that she's powerless. So empower her, assure her, but ultimately leave the decision up to her. 
I think that's such a useful clarification of possible goals, some of which may or may not be immediately within this letter writer's remit. But I think especially in the context of, I'm afraid that all this will do is make my friend angry. Because I, I, I think the letter writer is, is right. It does seem like it's likely, even if you approach this carefully, that Jane will get at least briefly defensive and potentially angry. So I do think that that's uh, reasonable to take into account. But I would say, you know, this does not fall under the category of something that might not work for you, but you would want to sort of adopt a live and let live policy. Um, I think letter writer, if one of your goals is simply to say, I would want to make sure that if I knew one of my friends was considering running guns for a guy who says it's totally legal, I have an understanding with the local police department, I want to make sure that I say something to that friend. That is a, an achievable goal in itself. And it's it's worth doing, even if it does not immediately result in Jane saying, gosh, you're right. Uh, I'm going to really rethink this. Um, I, I appreciate, too, your, your um, taking the time to kind of distinguish between it, it certainly seems like there are ways in which both Jane's husband and his cousin Joe have have really taken advantage of her, have misled her or lied to her outright or or even um, exposed her to potentially serious legal risk by putting her name on legal documents for, you know, some sort of family foundation, whatever that means. Um, and that that is also separate from she seems excited about the idea of joining him in this scheme, which again, this really feels like the beginning to like an HBO limited series, um, like the yoga teacher who gets caught up in in the exciting world of international arms dealing. So, with you know, with all of that in mind, there's both the question of Jane, I'm worried about you and your safety, and I think then there's also the question of I think it's bad to help run guns. You know, like that is a potentially not just something where you, Jane, are at risk, but where you may potentially be uh, directly causing others to be harmed quite seriously. And that's also worth saying to your friend. This is not just about her safety. It's also about her apparent excitement about risking other people, uh, other people's safety. So I, I think those are the sort of key elements here. And I would maybe keep it Dist- I, I would not use that as an opportunity to also bring up, by the way, I think it really sucks that your husband cheated on you um, just because there's a limit to how much anyone can sort of take in in one conversation, right? You got to do triage and the guns here take precedence over your husband cheated on you, right? Does that feel appropriate? Absolutely. I, I agree. And I think that's really sound advice in this context. You can't, you, you can't perform triage while, you know, the bloodshed is everywhere. So you got you got to focus on where is the gash. This is the current gash. Yeah. So uh, you know, again, I, I I share your thoughts that what needs to happen next is a pretty straightforward conversation with Jane. Um, it, it might be a good idea to write down like what are my two most important things that I want to say to make sure that you don't forget it because this is the kind of conversation that has the potential to go off the rails pretty quickly. And I would say just you know make it your goal to be I want to make sure I say those things and not worry too much yet about what the outcome might be. Um, That will go a long way towards making it feel manageable rather than it's my job to make sure that by the end of this conversation, Jane agrees with me. And I would say focus on both the legal liability and encourage her to talk to a lawyer, maybe one who specializes in, I don't know, employment law. Um, 
just frankly, any lawyer would be a great person to rope in about the ways in which she may already be liable for things that she doesn't yet know about. And then also to say just on a, on like an ethical front that you think it is a bad idea to try to run guns to make money. I, I, I think that's worth risking getting your friend offended and angry over because I think if you don't have that conversation, it will weigh on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the stakes are just so high. This is not about a friend buying a bad piece of art <laughs> or like an awkward looking shirt. This is about something that can impact so many people's lives. And, you know, I'd, I'd encourage our letter writer to think about their values. Like what, where do they stand on like gun running? It's not just about the safety of their friends, but about what our letter writer believes in, in terms of uh, weapons and trade. Yeah. Yeah. All of that's going to be useful to you. And and I do hope that, you know, however that conversation goes, that afterwards you'll be able to set aside some time to reflect and maybe reach out to your own friends or or a therapist or or anyone else whose judgment you trust so that you can get a little guidance for yourself. Um, but yeah, I, I think this is one of those things where you're going to have to have a difficult conversation. There's no way around it. It is likely that your friendship will be changed as a result of it, probably not immediately for the better. I, I appreciate too, uh, your, your thoughts earlier about, you know, do I want to also raise the possibility of leaving her husband? I, I think it seemed to me like you were leaning in the direction that I was, which is that maybe is, is a secondary question that she may or may not arrive at after thinking through, do I really want to go ahead with these deals? Right. Um, and and to clarify that, you know, when you set, when one is setting those, um, writing out what are the expected outcomes here, it's important to kind of uh, create a hierarchy, like what is the most important outcome? And then what are the secondary outcomes? Because as you said, Danny, you don't want to conflate a bunch of conversations. You don't want a conversation about the relationship to also be a conversation about selling guns. So to separate them and prioritize them is important. Especially because I think if it gets too um, quickly tied to your opinion of her husband, which again, letter writer, I think I probably share your profound skepticism towards this husband, then it can quickly get derailed into just, well, I love my husband, which is not really the conversation you need to have. Um, It's not about whether or not her husband is worth staying married to. That is a separate question uh, for her to answer for herself. You're not saying you must leave him and denounce him. You're saying, I really think that you should reconsider what you're committing to. And I also think you should probably speak to a lawyer uh, to to learn a little bit more about what potential risks uh, you may have already been forced to run. Gosh, beyond that, you know, I, you know, I understand the letter writer's sort of bewilderment at, I thought that my friend's relationship to yoga was one of peace and love. And it turns out that it had perhaps more to do with cultivating a sense of herself as a, I don't know, quote unquote, good person rather than what's good for many people. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like the situation really brings up a question of like identity, you know, who am I friends with? Who is this person I thought I knew as well? Yeah. And was there something that I thought was an ethical commitment of hers that seems now to me to be more an aesthetic commitment um, or to simply not look like the same thing to her that I thought it did? Um, And that can be challenging too. Gosh, beyond that, yeah, I'm really sorry that your friend is considering doing this and seems excited at the prospect of making a lot of money in so doing. That would be really upsetting. 
I hope she doesn't. For whatever it's worth, he does not sound like a king of business. It sounds like the kind of thing that would pretty quickly get shut down, but I also don't want to completely remove from the realm of possibility that they might get away with doing something for quite some time either. I don't want to say like, don't worry, I'm sure it'll fall apart. I hope it does though. I I hope both that it falls apart and that she backs out. I would love to hear an update on this one, letter writer. So however that conversation goes, please do write back and let us know what came of it. Um, I would love to know more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. All right, I'll take our second letter. I um, I had considered editing it down. Um, it's a little bit on the longer side, and there were a couple of turns of phrases that this letter writer used that sort of surprised me or, or confused me, but I wanted to leave it in because I, I thought it would maybe be worth trying to figure out why someone might phrase something in, in a given way or where we think their concerns might be. So with that caveat, I'll take it away. The subject is too much plagiarism. I teach undergraduate writing at a small university. Nearly all of my students are racialized, and most are English language learners. Historically, I have treated plagiarism as a learning opportunity, since many students are new to the idea of source use. I've also tried to address plagiarism before it happens by creating meaningful assignments that allow students to pursue their interests, decentering grades, focusing on relationships slash care over content, scaffolding source use skills, encouraging revision, etc. When I find evidence of plagiarism, I usually meet with a student and work with them to revise their work. This is time-consuming, but it's in line with my pedagogical values. However, since COVID, my institution has moved to teaching online, and I've seen a huge increase in plagiarism. Last semester, more than one student told me that they cheated because there was no reason not to. At best, they'd get away with it. At worst, they'd have to redo the assignment. I had several students who plagiarized all their assignments at least once or who were given a chance to revise their work and instead turned in a different plagiarized assignment. This has never happened to me in eight years of teaching. I understand students are stressed, that they lead complicated lives that often involve working multiple jobs, and that most are doing their best, but this is really wearing on me. I teach four courses a semester, and at least one full working day is going to endless plagiarism meetings and regrading assignments. To make matters worse, my university started a policy such that faculty members can no longer give a student a zero for a plagiarized assignment without reporting it formally, so I can't deal with students who plagiarize multiple times by eventually failing them on the assignment. I'm teaching some summer classes, and right now I have multiple students 
who have such significant plagiarism issues that I have no evidence they've learned anything. They've even plagiarized low-stakes participation activities. Part of me thinks it's a pandemic. The world is on fire. Who cares if someone cheats in their English class? Don't be a cop. Maybe this will get better when we're back to -to face-to-face instruction. However, the other part of me feels that I can't pass someone when I've seen no evidence they've learned anything. What is the ethical thing to do here? So glad that there's a professor to speak a little bit to this. Uh, I would love to hear some of your thoughts. Oh, yes. Um, I feel this deep in my bones. And I think, you know, plagiarism cases are always emotional events in an educator's household, I think. Because these are questions I ask myself often. And I frequently discuss this at the end of almost every semester with my partner, who's also like me, a professor in a large research institution. So I want to first acknowledge, you know, the the sort of self-talk that our letter writer um, is generating, the statement, don't be a cop. Yes, (laughs) don't be a cop. When we work within the neoliberal education system, we have this enforced role, which is to police students by proxy. So for example, where I work, I'm a mandatory reporter of domestic and sexual violence. And I often worry that such mandates protect the institution and don't do enough to protect survivors who are predominantly women and femmes or trans students of of ours. So the plagiarism mandates, I think similarly, but not exactly in the same way, they disempower faculty um, and they ask us to sometimes adhere to some top-down definitions of like, what is private property? What is intellectual theft? And so on. So I want to acknowledge, I think, Danny, you know, the letter writer is already doing really incredible work as an educator. They've they've attempted to decenter their authority. They are foregrounding the learning opportunities that an event of plagiarism offers us. And I also appreciate that they're remaining aware of the long-lasting impacts of like a suspension or uh, a poorly written transcript on minorized and first-generation students especially, we do not recover um, in the same way as, you know, as others from punitive educational moments. So I acknowledge that and I acknowledge the utter exhaustion also of teaching a four full course load semester. That is, it's too much. Teaching is moral work and the letter writer is trying their damnedest. They really are. Um, and refusing the role of the cop is, I think, central to this. But and refusing that role should not require you to give up your dedication to your field and to your profession. And I think those definitions of like what your job is in your profession can exist outside of the institution as well. So this is what I would say in terms of um, advice. Um, and this is only uh, based, it's based exactly on how I do things as well. So I'd advise you, dear letter writer, Um, to distinguish between the types of plagiarism taking place. I think this takes some pressure off you. There is emergency plagiarism, okay? Um, It's the kind of plagiarism that results from panic, last-minute relapses, eviction, loss of job, conflict between life and work. That disproportionately affects folks of color and poor folks of all identifications. That is plagiarism in a crisis, and that often shows up in the final paper, the final project, you'll know that this is coming up. Or if it co- shows up, you're like, I, I was worried this could happen. And I think that kind of choice demonstrates that they need more help, right? 
Then there's casual and repeat plagiarism. That's just, you know, that demonstrates inconsistent relationship to the course, disinterest in just the labor required. Um, and that shows up in the plagiarized low stakes activities that you're talking about. And to me, that's a whole different game. That's, that's about um, choosing to not do a certain kind of work. And this kind of choice demonstrates that they're not learning, that they're not ready to pass, and they do perhaps even need to repeat that course. So um, I think the advice I have is actually about when our letter writer speaks to their students about plagiarism. So do speak to them about the moral and ethical work of learning during the very early weeks of class. Don't leave those questions and definitions of plagiarism to the small print, the fine print on the syllabus. The shared work of learning and the work of creating ideas, it's a communal matter, right? So like ask them, ask your students, what kind of society do you want to live in? How would you want people to engage with what is yours, what is shared, what belongs to others? So if they connect the intellectual work they're doing to ethical actions of living in a society, building that society from the outset of the course, then maybe they won't feel um, plagiarism is the only uh, resort when they come to face certain pressures. But yeah, I, I think, you know, I just, I really want to celebrate all the efforts too that the letter writer has made in this regard. I appreciate that so much. I think, um, uh, you know, one of the things that I also felt reading this letter was that real sense of this professor is themselves overworked and, um, you know, overburdened additionally through the way that their school has handled teaching through COVID. Um, and so I also just really appreciate both their, you know, desire to treat their students as people they are there to teach rather than people that they are there to punish. And, um, uh, you know, so I, I admire that. And, and also, you know, that gen genuine question of what do I do? And I, do my best to work with students and I feel like they haven't learned anything. And it seems like most of, uh, if not all of the sort of information I'm getting from the top is just, well, if somebody plagiarizes a lot, report it. That's, that's all we've got for you. That's not much in the way of guidance. And so I can really uh, appreciate that sense of what do I do? I, I share your, your thoughts too, about really wanting to spend the earlier part of class, um, being very, very explicit and methodical about what constitutes plagiarism. I don't want to assume the letter writer hasn't tried doing that because, again, clearly they've been thinking about this a lot. But it did, uh, my thought was I've treated it as a learning opportunity, meaning like maybe I'll, I'll put the definition, as you were saying, in the syllabus. But then if it comes up, that now it's the time to learn rather than thinking about. What might it look like if, for example, next semester I dedicated a significant portion of the first class to simply going through, here's what plagiarism is, here's the ways that it harms the learning process, um, here's other solutions for it, um, both reassuring students that, like, I am not going to try to, you know, hurl you into a volcano the first time you do it, but also, you know, don't do it. Uh, um Without, without just saying that. But then I, I was also wondering, you know, I, I'm so curious about that statement. Um, some of my students told me last semester that they plagiarized because they saw no reason not to. Obviously, I can understand that that must have felt really frustrating. I can understand a frustrated response. But I'm also like, 
was it just like, were they just like popping their collars and being like, yeah, teach. I, you know, I got no reason to care. Fuck this class. Or was it part of a conversation about some of the other things that you mentioned, which are, you know, um, that they're facing eviction or family crises or illness, um, uh, or simply just the exhaustion of, I go to all of my courses on Zoom and then I try to keep up with everything remotely. And I'm just, you know, this is the one thing that I feel like I, I have to sacrifice because other things like paying bills or taking care of ill family members or, you know, dealing with my own fears around COVID risks are, are taking precedence. So not to say that if a student shares something like that with you, that then you need to start a full-scale investigation into like, how are you? But I, I, I would encourage the, the letter writer to think about those in terms of like, were they saying it like, yeah, I cheated because there's no reason not to and I don't care? Or was it, there's no reason not to because I am learning in some incredibly diff- difficult circumstances and this is just too much? And so I wonder, you know, tell me, tell me what you think about this. One of my thoughts was like, you know, that line about some of my students are even plagiarizing low stakes participation activities. Mm-hmm. I wonder if part of the opportunity there is to rethink your relationship to low stakes participation activities during remote COVID instruction. I don't, again, I don't want to like say, just stop doing anything that requires class participation, but if they are being graded on participation activities and a lot of students are are apparently just like not able to do that, I wonder if you can redo that such that they are optional or that they are like things that you discuss in class rather than, I don't want to call those things like busy work. Does that make sense? Like I I worry that I'm saying, oh, you've clearly been assigning a lot of useless busy work and this is your sign that you need to stop. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. No, I I see what you're saying. I think when we say busy work or when students complain about busy work, they mean, I think there's a, a deeper desire there, which is, can you help me be more accountable to my learning? And can you stop making me feel like I'm just this passive mechanical automaton processing information? And I think there's always a way in which um, whatever participatory activities are there, that they are tethered to deeper kinds of accountability with the learning community. So whether that means like, hey, here's your response. I'm asking you for your response as an educator But I'm also then asking a peer to respond to you. So you know that you're always in a conversation with someone who is as smart, as caring, as invested in this community as you are, you know? I think always connecting and tethering a student's learning to someone else's learning helps with that accountability. And it moves us away from these kind of accusations, I think, ultimately, that the students cast upon the faculty, like, hey, this is just busy work. I don't want to do it. But it's like, actually, we're accountable to each other. And you know we're accountable to each other for what we learn because someone else is waiting on you to tell them what you think about this movie or this book that you've just read. Yeah. I I really think, letter writer, the key here is this has never happened to me in eight years of teaching. That, to me, suggests this is not like a new problem that's arising among students because they care less or something that you have failed to do. To me, that really speaks to the crisis that has been remote learning in a pandemic. And so it makes sense to me that this is a sort of unprecedented problem for you. Um, And it also makes sense that you would then want to find really new solutions or opportunities for repair rather than just going into the university policy, which again, you know, because there's so much, so much that 
various institutions have done badly that deprioritize, you know, safety and well-being of of workers and students in in this crisis. I can imagine ways that it might feel a little bit tempting to get to a certain point of frustration where you just say, well, yes, everything's bad, but the only sort of opportunity I have to set a hard limit is with the students, even though the people I'm the most frustrated with might be the administration. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to start cracking down there. No more Mr. Nice Professor. Um, and again, it's it's clear to me that that's not what you want, letter writer. And so I think thinking about how do I avoid taking out those chronic frustrations that I can't really direct up, how do I make sure that I don't just pass them down the line um, is, is a very good one. And so to that end, you know, you do not have to formally report people, but it also makes sense if you do want to say, I need to be able to reserve the right to occasionally say, I can't give you a passing grade. Not that you're going to be handing those out like candy, but to say there may be circumstances where I decide that that is within my remit and that I think is allowed. <laughs> you know, you are allowed to do that. But yeah, I, I guess just beyond that, um, I, I think so many institutions have paid like bare lip service to, yeah, these are really unprecedented times, but kind of also like everybody get back to work and just do the sort of thing that you might have been able to do two and a half years ago under pretty unbearable circumstances. And it's just really clear that your students, by and large, are not able to operate under uh, the sort of circumstances that were possible several years ago. Um, and so thinking about, are there other ways that I can try to encourage learning, foster learning, meet students in the middle of real crises that does not look like, all right, I tried, but you guys really do have to get back up to the standard of 2018. And if you don't, I, I, I've run out of options. That might look like changing the number. And again, I don't know to what extent this letter writer might have the sort of authority to um, really change up their requirements. There may be certain institutional requirements that you have to request. And so I don't want to act as if the professor is just able to say, everyone gets an A automatically, nothing is due. Uh, when we have class, you know, we're going to try to engage with each other as best we can, but nobody needs to worry about getting an A on top of COVID. Um, but if, if that is within your remit, you know, by all means, go with that. It would be easier for you, too, if you were just like, only do this if you can, such that, like, rather than having to deal with a bunch of plagiarized essays, you maybe just have to grade fewer essays because some people would just choose not to do it. I don't know. I, I, I think that's kind of it for me. I, I really recognize that there can be such a desire to eventually, like, shift into, like, punitiveness or, like, what does this mean for the rest of your life? If I don't get you in trouble now, then that means that 10 years from now, if you have a job somewhere, you're going to be you know, doing awful things. And this is my last chance to save you from a lifetime of error, which can only be solved by like Dickensian correction. And I just don't really buy that. Yeah, Danny, I, I agree with you on that. I, I, I think the the sort of more, the kind of the moral tale of the teacher who didn't catch the plagiarist who then became a criminal, you know, I, I think that's, it's overstated and reductive. And I think what this exposes is the fact that we have a conflict between like two laboring classes of, of beings, you know, with, with varying power who are both being like disciplined and punished um, by an administration that doesn't actually care about them <laughs> fully. Um, and I think the sooner as instructors and educators, and I'm speaking here only from my experience, the sooner we make it clear and transparent whose side we're on when we begin a course, 
the sooner we inspire our the learners that we are taking care of, that their economic concerns, educational concerns, political concerns are often ones we share, the less likely they are to compromise their education by um, taking an emergency route like plagiarism. Um, the more likely they are to rise to our expectations or that they will be honest and um, caring about the, themselves. Because, you know, like plagiarism is an act of personal shame. They're going to they're gonna feel that shame for a long time. Um, and we should address it also at the emotional level for them early on before they choose it. Yeah. So I, I think I just want to try to sum up what I think we've cobbled together here in part because I think I... I uh, uh, took a couple of different detours and I want to make sure that we end on a note of sort of clarity. So so one of the suggestions that I think we both share is spend more time upfront discussing what plagiarism is and what other options are available with your students at the beginning of every semester. Um, I, I think also consider to whatever extent it is in your power um, assigning fewer assignments for the duration of remote learning is a good thing. Or, you know, decoupling assignments from grades wherever that's possible for you, realizing that you may not be able to do that all the way or, or even very much. And, and as you say, not that you want to take a really like casual approach to plagiarism, but to think of it not as something that you must correct lest someone slip into a lifetime of error so much as, well, that's not my money wasted, um, you know. Uh, it might feel personally frustrating since you presumably care a lot about these topics, but it is not ultimately something that requires like punitive urgency. Um, and then, you know, my last thought is just think about the conditions that create opportunities for plagiarism. And, you know, again, you say maybe it'll get be better when we're back to face-to-face -face instruction. I think maybe replace face-to-face -face instruction with like not an ongoing pandemic. Because it's not just the face-to-face -face stuff. Obviously, that's part of it. But the other part of it is also just everyone's lives got, except for, you know, I don't know, a handful of billionaires, got a lot harder and a lot worse um, when COVID started. And for most people, it hasn't simply gotten better. So think about what are the conditions where students feel like that is their only option? And are there ways that I can give them other options? And, and maybe that's like, look, if you just need to email me and tell me you can't finish the assignment, I don't need you to give me an excuse. Just let me know. And we'll work something else out if you can do that. I think, again, if all that does is cut down on the plagiarized essays that you have to go through, that's a win. That's a little more free time. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. 
Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. Well, this feels like a pretty good moment to pause. uh, And, and, um, you know, especially since we're on the subject of like life in in the academy and thinking about different ways of um, relating to daily life and to our obligations to one another, especially in the context of this particular professor working with a lot of students who are new to, you know, taking courses in English um, uh, and, and your own work, which recently came out. I would love to just hear a little bit more about, you know, how has producing new work in this pandemic been going for you? How has this affected your way of thinking about the academy, about your colleagues, about your students? Well, you know, I think the pandemic, I've experienced it as a very lonely cage, as many of us have. Um, not only have we been stuck, you know, in in a very sort of narrow definition of what life looks like, but also a lot of the connections that I relied on to kind of verify my work and have like productive arguments around the art I'm making and the writing that I've been doing, that's that's really shrunk quite radically. And so I think I had to rely <laughs> um, more than ever on like my my own judgment. So there, there's a kind of loneliness to that, like to always just relying on your judgment. You can't just like say, hey, meet me for a coffee, meet me for a drink. I'm working through this draft. Can you can you help me out? Um, but Ironically, I realize over the last 16 months, I know more than I let on to myself. Hmm. Um, I am surprised by that. I'm surprised that I I know more about my own process. I can trust my judgment more than than I used to. So that's that's been a good, I kept, I guess a kind of a gift of the pandemic. Um, but writing is in contrast to all romantic illusions around it, it's not a solitary, it's not a lonely activity. It's a very social, very political, very communal activity. And I've had to change my definition of what community looks like um, during the pandemic. You know, sometimes it just looks like, you know, texting a friend who lives across the world and saying like, am I falling down a giant hole? And her writing back saying like, probably not send me the draft. <laughs> you know? So yeah, it's been a, a really, uh, it's a moment of learning for me about myself and my judgment. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I often think of my own judgment, not necessarily as something that I cannot trust, but that requires fairly regular um, calibration. So just to to get light and air on it, to check it against the judgment of others so that I can, you know, sort of remind myself of, oh, this, you know, checkpoint has moved or the standard has shifted and normally it's a little more expansive and I want to open it back up again. So I share your sense of just that sort of attempting to measure something in isolation without other sorts of measurements can be a little like, all right, I think I know what a foot looks like, but did I just accidentally measure something that's like nine feet long? And I just, that that can be so challenging. And also, you know, our measurements literally are changing all the time. We used to measure things by like the forearm of a king, right? Now it's like you have standardized measurements. But what I mean to say by that is like, I used to rely so much more pre-pandemic on like so-called experts, conferences, peer review, you know, my so-called peers. But now, since I don't go to conferences anymore, or I, you know, I'm not meeting these so-called professionals, I'm relying on like, what does my grandma think about this? And 
what does my cousin think about this one thing? And I think it expands an idea of who gets to weigh in on what's working and what's not working, which has actually helped my, my, my poetry. It's helped my um, art. Yeah. yeah and, and speaking of your, your poetry and your art, uh, I know that Curb came out earlier this year, I believe in, in April and uh, through Nightboat Books, which is a fabulous uh, organization. And I'd just love to hear a little bit, what's it been like having a book come out during the pandemic, during quarantine? Has it you know, fostered new opportunities to connect in unexpected ways? Has it felt a little surreal? Has it felt, um, yeah, how's it, how's it been? <laughs> I was nervous that the book was going to come up in the pandemic. And I, I imagined a kind of vacuum or this like this dark room that it would enter and then just sort of turn into ash and die instantly. But it's really the reception of the work has been so, so different from what I had feared. Um, because everyone is um, living in these newly formed virtual communities and these new networks through Zoom readings and like Eventbrite productions, you know, we there has been, um, you know, Curb has found its kit across the world. Like, you know, when we launched the book, we had people coming in from India and Singapore and all over the United States as compared to, you know, pre-pandemic, I would have given a launch reading in New York City, which I would have met some of my friends and loves there. Um, I mean, I would have seen you, Danny. It would have been great. Um, but I was able to like connect with like cousins and relatives and students from across the world. And the emotional impact of that, it really kind of stretched out the history. It opened up the long timeline of how writers actually work. It's not just about a single community in the city in which the publisher is located. It's about every single person who has, who has read the work, who, who's connecting with the themes of the work. And I don't know, I found myself oddly grateful um, for the limits of the pandemic because those limits have actually been um, expanding, expansive opportunities. Yeah, I, I was reading one of the interviews um, that you did when your book had come out, and I, I'm thinking now in the context of our second letter, uh, you know, your your interviewer pointed out uh, your own gestures towards Sarah Ahmed's idea about citation as an acknowledgement of debt, and that seemed like such a a valuable way also of potentially um, you know incorporating that into one's own pedagogy, which is uh, you know teaching your students about the idea of citation not simply as an obligation that you must follow so that you do not get in trouble, which I think is how, how many people frame it, but as a, as a way of forming uh, and solidifying connections and relationships and um, acknowledging those whose work you admire. And I so appreciated that. I love that your, your interviewer had also pulled that sort of nugget out of your own work. And that just seems so valuable to me. Has that always been part of your own like pedagogical relationships or has that been something that you've um, come to through the work of many others or? Yeah. I you know, really appreciate you observing that. Um, I think in my education, which has been both sort of driven by post-colonial and decolonial context, because I grew up in India and in Singapore, but also Western ideals around mastery. I've, I've always experienced like the creation of knowledge as a kind of uh, a conflicted site, right? So it's like, on one hand, my education in the US has been like, you must master the craft. And it's it's an awful mandate. Um, so I've kind of turned away from that and I've returned to ideas of shared knowledge production, debt, 
and gift culture that that are that my own identity is rooted in, that my heritage is rooted in. You know, um, I think entire cultures are defined by what we owe, how we think about what we owe to each other and how we receive things from each other, how we give thanks for the things we receive even without asking. And, you know, like our, our letter writers worried about not being a cop, right? Like, yeah, don't be a cop and acknowledge that when we are producing ideas, we're always producing it in community with others. And we need to learn how to name those others acknowledge those others and bring them into the most contemporary iteration of that idea. You know, it's, I find it so powerful, Danny, to, to know that I am not a master of my idea, to know that I am just moving forward something that an elder has given me. I feel less lonely when I do that. I feel less afraid to make mistakes because when I do make mistakes, then I say, okay, I didn't understand that fully. Let me try again. I can always be a student. I don't have to be a master. And, and as a writer, I find that to be a huge relief just to be a student of my art. Um, and citation and acknowledging debt is a big part of that for me. I, I so appreciate that. And I so appreciate all the ways that I have seen that um, in our conversation already today, um, as you thought in our first letter about what are ways that the um, friend in question can avoid reproducing a sense of powerlessness. What are ways in which they can remind or encourage their friends towards a sense of autonomy and, and empowerment? Not the sort of empty empowerment of like, I'm a badass and I can do anything, but literally I have options. I, I can cause harm. I can help. I can, I can do work that affects the world. And thinking of it too in the context of students, again, not to say that plagiarism doesn't matter who cares if students do it, but to think about how can I encourage students to think of themselves not merely as either the recipients of an education that is going to be fed into them that they will then digest and then, you know, push out of their bodies. Um, but what are ways in which citation allows you to make small but measurable change in the world, create something, acknowledge something, give a gift? You are not merely a student learning from me, but you are producing something that can be uh, useful and meaningful to others. Yes, I really appreciate that. And, and I agree. I agree with your, how you're um, listening to what I'm saying as well. Thank you, Danny. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think often of sometimes in recovery communities, people talk about ideas about powerlessness and whether or not that means declaring I'm bad and useless and everyone should never get mad at me for doing something wrong because I'm powerless rather as the idea of taking one's place. Sometimes it's referred to as like being a worker among workers rather than the piece of shit at the center of the universe, which can be a really like stultifying and yet attractive position for somebody who's like working with addiction, which is just like, I'm so bad and I'm so important. Um, and there's such freedom in, as you were saying, not becoming a master, not being the piece of shit at the center of the universe, but in, um, uh, taking up work with others in small, manageable human quantities. Indeed. Yeah. Um, to give up mastery is to, I think, give up the desire to constantly withhold and retain power from others because it's always going to be taking power away from others if you want to with withhold it and, and keep it to yourself. done it. We've answered our questions for the day. 
we're, we're ready to move out into the world as uh, slightly changed people. Do you have any kind of final thoughts for any of our listeners or um, any, any final bow that you want to put on these little, um, I don't know, macaroons that we've nestled in a little box? Gosh, um, I think I would like to just underscore what you said, Danny, which is we don't need anybody else's permission to live without fear. That's, you know, for anybody who lives in a relationship where there's a power imbalance, we don't need their permission to exist without fear. We can choose to do that. Um, so I, I think in even in our, the question about plagiarism today, there is also the fear that the faculty member has done something wrong to allow all of this to happen. But no, I think all our letter writers today um, deserve to live without fear and to live freely. Um, so yeah, thank you for, you know, thank you for this opportunity to think through this with you. Yeah. Davia, thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, I, I so, so appreciate the, the deep care and thoughtfulness that you brought to each of these questions. Have a fabulous rest of your day. Thank you, Danny. You too. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up, to subscribe, or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you get a minute. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations and interview questions with our guests. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you need some little advice or big advice and you'd like me to read your letter on the show, head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form or find a link in the description of the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. I think those who've been bullied, which is not what I'm saying has happened here. I'm only speaking about my experience. We feel like when we want to cut off a relationship that we owe the bully an explanation because we feel that an explanation will stop us from getting more hurt. But I think in this particular context, our letter writer has no obligation, no social responsibility to explain why they need distance and space from somebody who is not respecting respecting their needs to share power. So in, in lieu of a potentially confrontational and difficult conversation, I would also suggest just writing a letter to yourself. Like, dear me, this is why you stopped being friends with Rory. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.